this morning, uh, let's begin with God. And let's begin with God in eternity as revealed in the divine revelation given to the apostles. God is self-existing and ever-existing, and he has what Paul calls an eternal purpose. And this purpose is based on God's will, which is God's intention, and God's good pleasure, which is what delight God's heart. And based upon his will and his good pleasure, God in Christ formed his purpose. For his purpose, he chose us to be holy. That is, to be the same as God in his holy nature. And he predestinated us unto sonship. That is to have the life of God for his expression. And all of this is to produce a corporate organic entity called the church, the body of Christ, which will ultimately become the new Jerusalem. So God in eternity planned to have a corporate expression of himself in his son with millions of those chosen to be holy and predestinated unto sonship. All this was decided in eternity past. We were foreknown then, we were chosen then, we were predestinated then, that's just the way it was with God. Then he created the universe <clears throat> and he created human beings and nobody knew why they were here. Job, in his pain, cried out. In chapter 10, he says something like this, I know there's a reason for this. I know there's a purpose, but it's hidden in you. Then, eventually, God and the Son was incarnated to be the Word of God, expressing God, defining God, declaring God. And in his ministry, he taught us very much concerning <clears throat> the kingdom of God especially. But he had a work to do in his humanity, that was to solve all the problems in the universe caused by the enemy of God. To accomplish this, he had died an all-inclusive death on the cross, solved every negative thing, and released the divine life, which he imparted into the chosen and redeemed ones in his resurrection. Amen. Not long after that, he ascended, and he left the entire carrying out of God's purpose to 120 mainly young ones 
in Jerusalem. From that point on, he entered into his heavenly ministry, which is being carried out as we speak and as we are meeting. The Lord told the disciples in John 16, he said, I have a lot to say, but you cannot bear them now. I remember when I was a new dad uh, holding my dear daughter who cried more or less for about a year. <laughs> and I remember affectionately rocking her and patting her on the back and saying to her, Becky, I can't wait until you can understand English because I have a lot to say to you. There's a lot I want to tell you, but you're only a couple months old. Well, the Lord said something similar. He said, I have many things to say, but you cannot bear them now. But the spirit of reality, which is Christ realized in resurrection, he will teach you all these things. He will guide you. What happened then was that the divine revelation was completed through the apostles, especially Paul. We cannot underestimate the scope of the revelation given to him in his epistles. Ephesians, Colossians, Hebrews. Then, of course, it was finally completed by John. So what we have in the beginning is a complete revelation of God's eternal purpose given directly by the Son and by the Son as the Spirit through the apostles. Then these apostles preached the gospel and established churches. This was the beginning. Not long after the beginning, problems set in. Now we need to flash back, not to eternity, but to a distant time, because among the beings created by God, a high-ranking high -ranking angel rebelled and became the enemy of God and the adversary of God. And he now opposes God's purpose to have a corporate expression in Christ with the believers. God is light. The enemy is darkness. God is true. The enemy is a lie and a liar. And God is a God of life. And the enemy is the source of death. So what happened is, there is a situation in the universe and on the earth in which, on the one hand, God is operating to carry out his eternal purpose with his chosen and redeemed people. On the other hand, the adversary of God is doing everything possible to interfere with this. So now in the first century, in the first decades, the revelation is completed. John wrote, you cannot add anything to this book. You cannot take anything away. It's completed. 
So there was a wonderful beginning in Jerusalem. We read this in the first few chapters of Acts. Then the damage came in until almost everything was lost. There always remained a line of those who walked in the light that they have. And the first line of attack was against the truth. We know the serpent did this to the woman. He questioned her, did God say this? Did God say? And then he contradicted God. He said, you will not die. So the primal battle concerns the truth. And because the truth has been lost or twisted or misunderstood, it has to be recovered. That is why we use the word recovery. It is a return to the truth as originally revealed. Then the other weapon of the enemy is death. And we are all living physically in the old creation. And we are subject to the law of death and decay in the old creation. Given enough time, all of us will expire. That's just, that's inescapable. Death has been defeated. Even death has been nullified. But it, death has not been removed. Death is not removed until Revelation 20. The last enemy, death, will be terminated. So we are in a situation where the world surrounding us is full of deception, illusion, lies. Uh, death is everywhere. But God is the true one, and God is the eternal life, and God is carrying out his eternal purpose. In order to do this, God must have a recovery of what was in the beginning. This burden especially rested on the Apostle John. He far outlived the other original apostles, perhaps by 30 years. He was very elderly. Actually, according to God's view, the most useful years are between 60 and 80. And then once you get to 80 and you're still here, you're really, really useful until you finish your course. So John comes on the scene with his ministry manifested. And his main burden is to bring us back to the beginning. This is recovery. So as we emphasized last night, John said in 1 John 2, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment. The word you had from the beginning. Yet, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in God and in you, because the darkness is passing away 
and the true light is already shining. So with John, there's not mere recollection. He's not saying, I was there. I want you to know, I was there. I leaned on Jesus' breast. I was at the cross. I took care of the Lord's mother. I was there in Jerusalem when my brother was killed. I got to know Paul. I, I survived the destruction of Jerusalem. I knew all these apostles who were martyred. Now I'm 90. He is not an elderly person living in memories, trying to tell us of the good old days of the beginning of the church life. John, by the time he is writing, is transparent, crystal clear. He's in the mind and being of God. He has the thoughts of God. He is not reminiscing. He is bringing us to the beginning, and he is bringing the beginning to us. Amen. So when he writes his gospel, he starts from the beginning. In the beginning was the word. So what is happening in his ministry is he's presenting us the original revelation, completed through what was given to him. But he's doing this under the shining of the true light. The result is everything is new, fresh. Everything dawns with fresh light and power. This is recovery. To be in the Lord's recovery is not to be on a quest for some ideal church that we think was there in the beginning. There never was an ideal church. Okay, you, you want a little evidence? Okay, visit this church. Here's what's going on. There are parties in the church designating themselves by certain workers. There's confusion in the meetings with the abuse of the gifts of the Spirit. Brothers are suing one another. There's an argument over whether you should eat certain kinds of meat. Some are drunk at the Lord's table meeting because at the love feast they overindulge while the poor didn't have anything. There's all kinds of disputes about marriage, and some are questioning whether there's resurrection or not. And Paul is writing to this group of believers, and he addresses them to the church of God, which is in Corinth. Except maybe for a short time in Acts, before Ananias and Sapphira came on the scene and wanted to have the reputation of being absolute, and before, really, some cultural, cultural or racial elements cause friction in the church. There never was this dream, utopian church. There was the genuine church that the apostles established to carry out God's eternal purpose. Now, we in the Lord's recovery are not pursuing a dream of a perfect church. And only if we have this perfect church are we in the church at all. 
There cannot be such a thing. There never was such a thing because people like us are here. And we can't do something like this. Sometimes I tell the trainees in Anaheim, you need to know the difference between being a visionary and being an idealist. A visionary is a person who has in spirit a spiritual understanding of God's purpose. You're like Joseph with your dreams. You have a dream. You know this is from God. You're like John and Paul. There's a revelation, a vision of what God wants. And that vision governs you. But you do not expect the actual situation now to be perfect. But what you do expect is that this vision will ultimately be consummated. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. There will be no devil, no sin, no division, no hatred, no death ever. It will be impossible. There will be the new Jerusalem as the corporate God-man shining out, and there will be on the new earth human beings living in eternal life as God created man originally to be. This is the vision. This will happen. I have no doubt about it. John saw it. He wrote in past tense, this is going to be. But I'm not looking around. Now I'm in Boise. What do we have here? Huh? We, we have the perfection of brotherly love. Everyone is mature. Everyone's praying without ceasing. Everyone is walking according to spirit every second. Come on now. I, I, I'm not looking for that. Because if that were in Boise, it would cease to be soon as I arrived. Soon as I came here, you now have the undoing of your situation. But an idealist is a kind of, is someone just looking for the perfect utopian place where there's always peace and there's always love. And, uh, you know, singers, they sing about it. What if there were no this? What if there were no that? There was just one happy human race. Well, if you're an idealist, looking for and expecting the perfect church, before long, you'll be a cynic. You will encounter disappointment. And you will realize exactly what the New Testament records, and you will say, that's not the church. I'm going to go find something else. You'll never find it, because it cannot exist. But what exists is a genuine recovery of what was in the beginning. The genuine church, established according to the truth, meeting on the ground of oneness with the dear believers in a locality who are enlightened to meet this way. So this is recovery. Recovery, on the one hand, brings us back to the beginning, 
what was God's original intention. On the other hand, in the ministry of recovery, the beginning is brought to us. And this is John. He's in this. He is living as if nothing has ever happened. He said, our fellowship. He doesn't say my fellowship. Our fellowship is with the Father. So he comes and he says, I'm not bringing you something you'd never heard before. I'm giving you an old commandment, meaning original. Then he says, I'm giving you a new commandment, which is the old original, shining with fresh power, illuminating you, reviving you, motivating you, energizing you. And this happens because the true light is already shining. Recovery begins when the true light shines on the revealed word, the word that has been misunderstood, the word that has been wrongly applied, whatever it is. So this is something that is approaching the very element of recovery. And we're speaking along this line because the Lord in the last elders training released a series of messages on the four great pillars in the Lord's recovery. Truth, life, the church, and the gospel. And these pillars indicate something stable, strong, unshakable. Four indicates there's a balance. Most of us as individuals, because we're only one member, cannot be perfectly balanced. We're balanced together. Amen. We're balanced when we're blended. Amen. I'm balanced when I'm with Tim and John and Andrew and Patrick. I'm balanced when I'm with Ed, Minoru, Benson, Dick Taylor, James Lee, and on and on it goes. But the recovery itself has four pillars. And everything will be shaken, as Hebrews 12 tells us. But the kingdom we have received, which is a reality in the church life today, is unshakable. Doesn't mean in our psychology we can never be shaken. In our physical weakness, we can never be shaken. It doesn't mean the church will never suffer under persecution. But inwardly, the Lord's recovery is unshakable because it is established on four great pillars which are the expression and testimony of the divine thought, the divine revelation in the beginning. We have to begin with truth because everything depends on the truth. If we want life, it's the word of truth that brings us the life. Life has to be communicated by the word. If that word isn't true, it cannot impart life. There must be the divine reality, the divine truth that's communicated 
the content of that word is life. When we have truth and life, we have the church, which is an organism, that's the life, and which is the pillar and base of the truth, that's the truth. Then we, the church, produced by truth and life, can fulfill our commission to announce the gospel, which is the complete message from God to the human race about his purpose, about redemption, about everything. Now, whether you realize it or not, and even though this is a cozy gathering in Boise, mainly saints from Idaho and from Utah, maybe some others, this is actually a gathering in the principle of the body. So I am speaking Amen. to the whole body Amen. by speaking to this cozy gathering in Boise. Amen. So you're not getting some watered-down, second-rate conference because it's, a, it's not 15,000 people. We're not governed by numbers. We're governed by the principle of the body. Amen. So God had an intention from the beginning. It was not known until the Son of God came and the revelation was given to the apostles. Then the Lord had a start in the church life. There's an enemy <clears throat> who's fighting to destroy, to frustrate. There was a lot of damage. God in his wisdom, if you have a why, you'll have to address the why to him. It's okay to ask why, but be prepared for silence <clears throat> because that's mainly what happens. So there's so much damage for centuries, maybe for 1,500 years. Then the Lord comes in to recover truth. This truth, that truth, this truth, that truth. To recover the experience of life then to recover the church, then to recover so many other items. So last night, we emphasized two things concerning the divine truth, which is the divine reality, that truth is the triune God himself with his word. I don't know uh, really anything about the humanities professors across the street, what they teach in the philosophy department, what they teach in literary studies. But the prevailing notion now is that there really is no truth that's universal. There's no way we can really know what really is. This is a typical American way of thinking. We can just describe things in a way that work, in a way that work. Whether there's a truth out there, we have no way of knowing. And this is based upon the belief there's no God. So if there's no God, there's no truth, because the truth is God himself. 1 John 5.20 calls, calls him the true. 
So what we need to be prepared to do is to have a direct confrontation. Not in the way of trying to defeat people in argument. But here's the real issue. You have no truth because you have no God. And you say there's no truth because you have no God. And we are here to say the opposite. God is truth. God is the true. He is the divine reality. And he has revealed his divine reality in the word which is also the truth. And we are here testifying this to everyone who will listen. It reminds me of Brother Lee's description of what happened on the campuses in the mainland of China in the 1920s. There were two active groups, very zealous and very successful. One was the communists. And this is before the revolution, right? So they're trained in Russia, and they're after the young people. And they gained prominent persons, Mao Zedong, Zhou Enlai, and also on the campuses, there was the gospel preaching of the churches, also targeting the young generation. Now, a little sidebar of Ron's personal hope about something. I personally hope for this. In the mainland of China, as the communist state was formed, you have Mao Zedong and you have Zhou Enlai. Watchman Nee is imprisoned unto death. Witness Lee, to this day, has a bad name and is forced to leave, never to return. Methinks that in the kingdom, China will be ruled by Watchman Nee and Witness Lee. Doesn't this make sense? Doesn't this sound like God? I mean, I'm not, the Lord knows my heart, and I'm really not being presumptuous. I'm just expressing my heart. I just don't think that the Lord is going to measure, measure out the Yukon territory to watch knee. Wouldn't it be glorious to say, those whom the world rejected, whom you persecuted, you had your time, Mao Zedong. How are things now down there where you are? Zhou Enlai, how are things now? This is based on Luke 16. How are things with our brothers? Well, my point is, and we should not be afraid of this, we are in direct opposition to the whole world when it comes to truth. So we're prepared. Call us idiots, call us fools, call us old-fashioned, whatever you want. 
But we don't simply believe in God. Amen. We know the true one. We are in the true one. And in his son, Jesus Christ. Is that not correct? And the son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know the true one. And we are here not arguing. We are here as witnesses. We are here as a testimony that this is the true God. This is the true one. God is real. God is the reality itself. God is true. God is the truth itself. And we are in this reality. This reality is in us. And the source of this reality is the shining of the true light, which is God as light shining. And we're here as your fellow human beings testifying of this. This is the recovery. And we should expect that on, at Boise State, we have to believe there are hundreds of chosen ones, ones chosen in eternity past. And God created them and he brought them to Boise State not to defeat the Air Force Academy in football, but to hear the highest gospel Amen. concerning the true one. And, and we do not proselytize. We are not at war with Christian groups. Right. But the fact is, okay, this is the fact, and we will be very uh, frank about it. Christianity only has fragments of the truth. The Lord has recovered much more than the Lutherans have. 500 years ago, they were on the cutting edge, not now. The Lord has recovered much more than the Calvinists in Moscow, Idaho, establishing their kind of reformed edifice. Much more. You are a half a millennium behind. Someone has to tell them this. You have the PhDs. I ain't got no PhD. Okay? I say that deliberately. I'm not here based on an educational level. We are here in the true one. The Son of God has given us an understanding. We are beneficiaries of recovery. Why don't you have a mind open enough to consider that the Lord still has a recovery. He didn't stop with Calvin. He didn't stop with Luther. He didn't stop with Wesley. He sure didn't stop with the Pope. He has a recovery, not of an ideal church, not of a perfect society, but of what was in the beginning. Amen. And this recovery is first the recovery of the truth. That's the first pillar. Then, it's the recovery of life. Now listen to this. Imagine you go to your inbox or your Blackberry or smartphone is on vibrate. You get vibration. You get a text. Just imagine what the apostles would have texted. Anyway, this is John's text message. 
that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have beheld with our hands, which we have beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested. And we have seen and testify and report to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What an opening. This is 1 John. The life was manifested. And we report to you the eternal life. I can't recall really hearing even, I'm not saying we should mimic the words. This is quite a startling way of speaking. I am here, I'd like to give you a report. Eternal life. Eternal life has been manifested. It was with the Father and was manifested to us. This is now John's ministry for the recovery of life. In his gospel, he says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word became flesh. Now he's referring to the same Word and saying it's the Word of life. That's in 1 John 1.1. Then he says the life was manifested. This indicates that the Word of life and life are synonymous. Now, I don't think I should take the time, but I was freshly impressed of something wonderful that we have in our possession that we may not, and I include myself, have considered for a while. And that is the outline of the Gospel of John in the recovery version. If you have the recovery version with notes, then the entire outline is printed at the beginning. And what word does brotherly use to designate the Son of God in this outline? He uses the word life. And he refers to the Lord as life. He talks about life's prayer yes, right. in John 17. Life meeting every human need. There is a tremendous revelation here that the, the coming of the Son of God was the coming of life itself. The life which is the triune God himself. And one of the riches in the Lord's recovery has been not only the teaching concerning Christ's life, but the manifestation of life. So I'm enjoying this word even now. The life was manifested. That means it was hidden. It was with God. And when it's manifested, it becomes visible. Life was manifested. 
This is the eternal life. And the note points out, literally, the Greek is saying, the life, the eternal. It was manifested to us, and we report it to you. To be in the Lord's recovery, intrinsically, inwardly, essentially, is to be in this manifestation of life. Just incredible. That is God himself in Christ as the Spirit, in his care for us, manifests himself in us as life itself. In all our situations, as we are meeting here, some dear saints, as far as I know, are still outside the intensive care unit of Medical City in Dallas, Texas, awaiting for the report concerning the wife of our beloved brother, Ray Graver, who has had a hemorrhagic stroke followed by extensive surgery. These kind of situations will not stop while we're in the old creation. But that's not all we have. In the midst of every such situation, life is manifest. In the midst of it, this is recovery. It is necessary to know about eternal life. It's necessary. It's necessary to read books about the experience of life and the knowledge of life. This is indispensable. Otherwise, we have no understanding. And when we read these books, basic lessons on life, basic principles of the experience of life, we do get some understanding of what eternal life is. We need this. But the burden this morning is on the manifestation of life. This was John's testimony. He's not giving them lessons about eternal life. He said, I am writing to you, this he mentions later, that you may know that you have eternal life. This might be 1 John 5, 13. Now, to echo a line from last night, do you believe that you have eternal life? I believe, here I say I believe about believe. <laughs> but probably we would all say, I believe I have eternal life. I believe John 3.16. But John did not say, I'm writing these things so that you would believe. He said, I'm writing these things so that you would know. So here is my question, but it's not asked as a prosecutor. My brothers and sisters, do you know that you have eternal life? Yes. To know it 
and that this eternal life is the same life God has. Amen. How about that? Amen. Suppose my wife sends me an email concerning the sole surviving pet, probably there'll be no more, this dud of a cat. <laughs> this scaredy cat, but she's still around. We take care of her. The righteous man cares for the life of his animal. And suppose she sends me this email and says, Katino, uh, no, not Katino's gone. Little girl, this boring cat is now speaking English. She has eternal life. This would be, on all the news networks, cat, cat has human life. So there's a cat man. Probably even some would send us texts from cat man do about the cat man. Well, of course, that's impossible because there's no human image to match the human being. But just consider the wonder of it. We have eternal life. Amen. Indestructible, uncreated, divine life, the same life that God has. However, we do not have it the same way God does, because we're not God. God has life by nature. He is self-existing. If you ask how God can be self-existing, direct the question to him, but be prepared for silence. Okay, I defer all such questions to the ultimate source. We have eternal life. In Christ, we have eternal life by having the Son. We have eternal life by being in Christ. But the fact remains, we have eternal life. We have the same life God has. Now here comes a crucial point. This will lead us into our outline, which we'll read through in about half an hour. With physical life, there are obvious indicators of dependence. And the very first, I don't know if pediatricians or obstetricians, they still do this, but when an infant is born, they want the child to make some noise to guarantee there's breathing. Our breathing is an indicator of dependence. When uh, Belshazzar was behaving outrageously, and you know, and the hand came and the message was inscribed, and Daniel is summoned, he said, the, the God in whose hand your breath is, you have not honored. These, probably they're good-sized men, the Boise Broncos, 
going after Air Force. I doubt if they have much sense of dependence. It's sad, but in fact, we need to eat. We need to rest. Even our physical life is a life of dependence. The principle of the tree of life is dependence on God as our life and life supply, moment by moment. So in eternity in the new Jerusalem, we will not be like the Mormons heretically teach, little gods with our own planet, producing spirit children. We will not be independent God-men. We will be forever dependent on the life of God, forever. We will forever drink the river of water of life. We will forever eat the fruit of the tree of life. We will forever be under the shining of the light of life. And one of the strongest signs of a believer's progress in the Lord is her or his increased sense of dependence. Then when you have a sense of dependence, you do not have morning revival, mainly because this is what you do in the church. And I want to be a good church person, and I want to have an answer for someone who asked me, what did you enjoy in the Holy Word this morning? It's just, I don't like saying, well, I, haven't, I wasn't in it this morning. We contact the Lord because we cannot live without him. I was so helped. Maybe it was 1976. One of the co-workers from Taiwan, he's still with us. He was fellowshipping with some of us who were much younger. He said, we need to say to the Lord, Lord, I cannot live without you. They this is the principle of the tree of life. God doesn't have to say to anyone, I cannot have life without you. He had life before there was anyone to speak to. He has life by nature. He is the one who is, who was, and who is coming. He is the living God. How this could be, I don't know. It's just a fact. But his desire is that there would be human beings created in his image who have not only a human life, but receive another life, the divine life, the eternal life, the life of God, the indestructible life, and that they would grow in this life to maturity, to become the bride, the wife of the redeeming God, to match him and to express him. And for this, the Lord is the tree of life. The title of the outline, talk about an old expression. An, 
Well, there's a book, The Tree of Life, yes. based upon messages given in the 60s. So once again, I'm not giving you a new message, but an old message on the tree of life, the word you heard from the beginning. Yet I'm giving you a brand new message. I never gave it before. You never heard it before because this is a new message Amen. produced under the shining of the true light. With Christ as the tree of life, he's the reality of that symbol, right, in Genesis 2. There are two main aspects. In incarnation, he came as the tree of life. John 1, 4 says, the life in him was life. In eleven twenty five, the Lord said, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 15, 1, he said, I am the true vine. So life plus true vine equals tree of life. Is my Bible math okay? Amen. I will not take business calculus or any other math, but my Bible math, at least on this matter, is correct. So when he was here, he was the tree of life. So I marvel at Brother Lee's outline. He said, life did this. Life did that. Life prayed. Life was peaceful when being tried. Life was crucified. Life resurrected. So he came as life itself. And the tree of life is life made solid. Life embodied. But, now this is interesting and significant. When Peter speaks of Christ's crucifixion, in 1 Peter 2.24, Peter says he bore our sins in his body on the tree. And he uses a Greek word, literally it means log or wood. But he calls it the tree. And he uses it to designate the cross. Now I don't remember... The exact reference is quoted by Paul in Galatians. Deuteronomy says, cursed is everyone hanging on a tree. So Peter understood that the cross was a tree. And the one who was the tree of life as the Lamb of God was nailed to this tree for our redemption. Now, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, we read of the tree of life. And I commend to you footnote 6, where Brother Lee points out that the Lord himself, when speaking of himself as the tree of life, uses the same Greek word that Peter used for cross or tree in 1 Peter 2.24. Then the interpretation 
given in the footnote, is altogether accurate. For Christ to be the tree of life means he is the embodiment of the riches of God, of the life of God. But now we need to see, as indicated by this word, the tree of life is the crucified and resurrected Christ. Crucified is implied by wood, referring to the tree, which is the cross, and resurrection indicated by the word life. If we begin to realize this, we will see the tree of life is not only the incarnated Christ. The tree of life is the incarnated, crucified, and resurrected Christ. Now, if the tree of life were only Christ incarnated, he could only be among us. We'd appreciate him. We could speak of him. But we could not partake of him. Because the way to the tree of life is guarded. Remember that? Yeah. It's guarded. Yeah. Right. You can't touch it. No one's allowed to touch it. You can't partake of that. You'll be killed. When the Lord died, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom, indicating the way into God was opened. Amen. And now we have access to the tree of life, and this tree of life is not only Christ incarnated. The tree of life is the crucified and resurrected Christ. God wants so much for us to enjoy the eternal life that he sent his son to be the word of God, the lamb of God, and the tree of life to die on the tree, the cross, to open the way to the tree of life, and then in resurrection to be the tree of life as the crucified and resurrected Christ. It seems that the thought is there's now a merging of the cross with the tree of life as the incarnated Christ, indicated by the word that the Lord uses. He doesn't go back to another word for tree. This log, this wood, is not only Christ incarnated, it is Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, to be the tree of life to you. Then we are assured of something wonderful in Revelation 22, 14. It says, blessed are those who wash their robes. doesn't say blessed are those who never dirty their robes. Blessed are the perfect. It says blessed are those who wash. That means to apply Christ's redemption to your behavior, to your situation. Then the verse goes on, they have the right to the tree of life. My brothers and sisters, do you think this way? When you're with the Lord and when you're aware of your weakness, of your failure, 
which you need to deal with, are you also aware that you have the right to enjoy the crucified and resurrected Christ as the tree of life based on his redemption? John is fully into this. He says the life was manifested. We report it to you. Now we declare this to you, that you would have fellowship with us. Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. Then he says, God is light, in him is no darkness at all. Then he goes on to say, the blood of Jesus, his Son, is continually cleansing us from every sin. As I am standing here, as you are sitting here right now, the blood of Jesus, God's Son, is continually cleansing us from every sin. That's what it says. You may say, I don't remember every sin. It doesn't say every sin you remember. It doesn't say every sin I recalled and confessed. It doesn't say every sin you confessed. Another verse speaks about confession so that your fellowship is restored. So John is saying, you need to know that you have eternal life which is manifested. And you have the right to this life through the Lord's redemption, through the blood that is cleansing you from every sin. When this becomes real in us, we are in the recovery of the tree of life. It can't just remain an item in our, in our file. The tree of life. It needs to be Something new, fresh, dawning in us. Lord, right here, right now, Amen. you are the tree of life to me. Amen. And you are now the right to yourself. And I can wash my robes. That's something I can do. Amen. I'm aware of defilement. I can confess that. I can repent of that. And we do. And I'm washed. So now what should we do? Just stand here washed? God would say, I've got a purpose to fulfill. Amen. By life, you have the right to the tree of life. Amen. This is the recovery Amen. of the tree of life. Let me read through the outline now. We need a vision. Yes. That's a spiritual seeing. To see that the Bible presents to us a, a picture of God in Christ as the tree of life to be our food. So after we wash our robes, we need to eat. The goal is not to be clean, but to eat. Have you ever said to your children, please go wash your hands? And so they leave the table to wash their hands. But what is your goal in telling them to wash their hands? That you would sit there with clean hands? Your goal is now you would enjoy the food. Sometimes we get so hung up on the need to solve the problems that even once they're solved, we forget, oh, this is so I can enjoy the triune God. Amen. This is so I can eat. This is why the tree of life is mentioned both at the beginning and at the end of the Bible. 
God's purpose in the creation of man in his image and according to his likeness was that man would receive him as life and express him in all his attributes. Okay? This is what God wants. The enemy knows something about this. So his scheme is, okay, I will make it impossible for them to have eternal life. I will lure them to sin. Then I know God will not be able righteously to allow them to the tree. What a victory I yeah, won. Right. Aren't I a clever fellow? <laughs> I know something about the attributes of God, so I will lure them into a situation where God has to condemn them. Then I can go, yeah, 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 yeah. You don't have life. God, you can't fulfill your purpose. Then he brings in death. So God is great. He lets the enemy have his yes. Then he sends his son in the likeness of the flesh of sin and concerning sin and crucifies every negative thing, including the devil, and fulfills all the requirements that were conditions for us to approach the tree of life. And then he indicates everything's solved. I've destroyed the devil. I've fulfilled the requirements requirements of my righteousness, holiness, and glory, just come forward in faith to the tree of life. And so he who sits in the heavens laughs. I don't think the devil likes to be laughed at. Martin Luther had a good saying, the devil doesn't like that. So I'd like to say, you dummy, you jerk. That's all you did was help God fulfill his purpose. Amen. Then when the Lord did it on the cross, he nullified you, he destroyed you, and you're lake of fire bound. Amen. And we are becoming the new Jerusalem, the city of water. What a God we have. What a wise God we have. The tree of life signifies the crucified and resurrected Christ. This should impress us. Who imparts life to man and pleases and satisfies man in an edible form. Okay, this morning, I'm not going to delve into your personal situation. But, you know, and, and I'm not trying to make you self-conscious, although probably you will be self-conscious as soon as I say this, but at least that's not my intention. I'm not sure everyone's countenance this morning uh, indicates that you are pleased, that you're happy, that you're... Don't put on a faux smile now. So I hate to pose for cameras. I can't. What is, what, how are you supposed to put on this faux smile? Everything should be candid. But the Lord wants to, you to receive him as life. So he, you can be happy. He wants you to be pleased with him. He doesn't want you to be sad. To be downcast. You may say, Human life is hard. I suffer human loss. He understands this. He's the man of sorrows. <coughs> but he wants you to still have something deeper going on in Amen. you than your loss. Amen. Even in the midst of the tears, there is something so sweet and satisfying. Amen. He wants to satisfy you. We should be able to come to the Lord's table and say, Lord, I praise you. You satisfy my being. We have that hymn, What Thou Art Meets Our Every Need. 
Well, he wants to do this. Why don't we let him do what he wants to do? But he does this through food. I, I got a text from someone serving in the training who was helping a trainee who was having a very difficult time. And the text said that this serving one, referring to a verse from Hosea, gently caused this trainee to eat. Amen. You have this verse in Hosea. Have you ever had a child that didn't want to eat? Isn't that a challenging thing? The things, the creative things parents do to get them to eat. Um, the Lord cares for us so much that he will gently cause you to eat. Please eat God in Christ Amen. today. The tree of life is the center of God's economy. The carrying out of God's economy depends on the tree of life, for it is the way to fulfill God's economy. So we are here for God's economy, his plan to dispense himself into us for his expression. And the center of this is the tree of life. Eventually, this needs to become our center in our life with the Lord. The enjoyment of the tree of life will be the eternal portion of all God's redeemed. Those who enjoy eternal life in this age, they will get a special portion of eternal life in the kingdom. But in eternity, all of the redeemed will enjoy this eternal portion. The tree of life fulfills for eternity what God intended for man from the beginning. I think briefly of my dear parents who have been with the Lord for nine years. What a hard life they lived, both born in dire poverty. My mother, one of 12 children, my father, one of 13. Her mother died when she was 17. She was a brilliant high school student, but had to refuse a full scholarship to the University of Michigan so she could go to Detroit and do menial work to support the family in the Depression. My father, his father, was killed in a mining accident when he was four. He was basically raised by one of his older brothers. When he broke a finger when he was young, he could not get any medical attention even from his mother, so it grew crooked. crooked. He completed his education at the eighth grade then went into the Ford Trade School, excelled at his trade until one day an incompetent crane operator pressed a wrong button and the hook and the boom of a 50-ton crane crushed his head against his machine, then swung back and hit it again, and he was blinded. So they end their life living in a 100-year-old four-bedroom house in a remote area of Upper Michigan. But they believed in the Lord, and they did their best with their son. And only the Lord knows how they will be evaluated before the Son of Man. That's up to him. But I'm so thankful 
that they will be among the millions who will enjoy eternal life forever. It is a great thing to be saved. It's a wonderful thing to be saved. But it's sad that the believers who will have this eternal enjoyment are deprived of it today, do not fulfill God's purpose by life, will not receive the reward of the tree of life, but instead experience something else. Two, the Lord wants to recover the church back to the beginning, to the eating of the tree of life. God's placing man in front of the tree of life indicates that God wanted man to receive him as life by eating him organically and assimilating him metabolically so that God might become the constituent of man's being. I had a really healthy breakfast today. I'm thankful for that. Oh, what oatmeal with walnuts on it and blueberries, antioxidants, and raspberries, and yogurt. The taste, the enjoyment is in the taste. The satisfaction is in being full in your tummy. But we don't live by the oatmeal in our mouth or the oatmeal in our tummy we live by the oatmeal that we digest and assimilate. Same thing with God in Christ's life. The, ta- the enjoyment is in the taste. The satisfaction is being full in spirit. But that must be followed by digestion and assimilation until this life becomes our very being. That means God wants to become the constituents of your tripartite being. Incredible. God not only desires that man be his vessel to contain him, he wants man to eat, digest, and assimilate him. We can't take the time to go in this direction, but if we did, I would like to check on your, whether you have indigestion or not, spiritual indigestion. If you have indigestion, or there's something affecting assimilation, then... The tree of life with its fruit is really not becoming life to you. You taste it, but you don't digest and assimilate it. There has to be the digestion and assimilation. And the key point in this is that our whole inner being is open to the life-giving spirit to flow everywhere. If you're willing to do that, you'll have good digestion. God wants, God, listen, God wants to be digested and assimilated by us so that he can become the constituent of our inward being. Isn't this incredible? Don't, don't, don't you think there are young people across the street who want to hear that God wants to be digested by them? Well, what a track that would be. God wants you to eat, digest, and assimilate him so he can become you for his expression. And that we be one with him and the same as he is in life and nature. This next point we have had on several outlines, but it's, it's an, so it's an old word. It's old. But it's new because the true light is shining on it. Eating the tree of life, that is enjoying Christ as our life supply, should be the primary matter in the church life. 
probably none of the co-workers, maybe, maybe a few have the standing to do this, but I don't know if the brothers would take it. But suppose we had an elders training next April, and we begin with an exam. And, 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 and all those attending have to answer one question. They have to put their name on their answer sheet. And the one question is, what is the primary matter in your church life? And uh, we'll let you know that we will test your answer, first by fellowship with you, and then second by having fellowship with the saints. And, and, and ask the brothers and sisters, what in actuality, okay, not in theory, okay, not in theory, what is the primary matter in the church life? Some would say, might say, well, pursuing the truth, preaching the gospel, God-ordained way, eating the tree of life, enjoying Christ as our life supply is the primary matter. Well, we're not having this imaginary elders training. It will never be. But let me gently ask, what's the primary matter in your personal life? Like today, what will be the primary matter? For some, it's their health. My health is the primary matter. Really? You love yourself that much? It's more important than God? More important than the recovery of life? Oh, my marriage, my children. So you have the confidence that your natural human life with its love is adequate to take care of your children in all of their need? Don't you have any idea the older they get, the harder it gets? Don't think being a dad is gonna stop when they graduate from college or get married, they're gonna get middle-aged and you're gonna be post-middle-aged and you're still going to be very exercised in your whole being about these people that you brought forth. I would never minimize that. I, I bear my daughter and sons and grandchildren all the time. How can I not? But they're not the center. My health is not the center. I take care of my health. Very thankful for healthy, nourishing meals in moderation. Control my blood sugar. Help me with this and that, the cholesterol. Very good. But I won't let that be the center. I refuse. I'm not looking for immortality. I'm not expecting this body to last forever. Oh, may the center be the tree of life. Through the redemption of Christ, the way by which man could touch the tree of life, which is God himself in Christ as life to man, has been opened again. That means open to you, okay? Not to everyone in the whole human race except you because you're just so bad and your failure is unforgivable and you're so complicated. So this is a general statement true about all the redeemed except you. Uh, you have to do something special, you have to suffer, you have to do penance, uh, you have to do something to earn it. No, no, that is religion. You just wash your robes. You just pray for the Lord's cleansing. 
As a fallen man, Adam was separated from the life of God and was not permitted to contact God as the tree of life. That's true. When Christ's flesh was crucified, the veil was rent, thus opening the way for us, those who were alienated from God, who was signified by the tree of life, to enter into the Holy of Holies, to contact him and take him as the tree of life for our enjoyment. Amen. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have right to the tree of life. Now, when you've had a failure, a trespass, a mistake, then in your psychology, you will really feel all kinds of negative things. And even after you confess, you may still, in your psychology, uh, not feel that good. So what happens is we waste a lot of time waiting to feel good. And then when we feel good, now we think we can approach the Lord. Now I'm sure he won't kill me, he won't get me. But actually this is not faith, this is not humility. This is a trick of the enemy. When we wash, we have the right. Have you ever prayed this? You may want to pray read that verse, get it into you and say, thank you, Lord. I have the right to the tree of life because I wash my robes. Through Christ's redemption, which fulfilled all the requirements of God's glory, holiness, and righteousness, the way to the tree of life was opened again to the believers. This is wonderful. Yes. Those who wash their robes in the redeeming blood of Christ have the right to enjoy the tree of life as their eternal portion in the holy city, the paradise of God in eternity. Yeah. This last point takes us one step further. In God's economy, we are not only the eaters of the tree of life, enjoying the continually fresh fruit, but we are also the branches of this tree, abiding in Christ, the tree of life, to enjoy the life juice. We have been grafted in. There are not two trees in this universe, something called the tree of life and something called the true vine. There's only one. The tree of life is the vine. Amen. And the interpretation stands that we have received of Revelation 22, 1 and 2. There's a river of water of life proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. On either side of the river grows the tree of life. Well, if we study the New Jerusalem, there has to be a golden mountain. The street has to be a spiral. And the river of water of life is spiraling down. What kind of tree can be available on both sides of the river in this situation other than a vine? Not an apple tree. Not any other kind of tree. So the tree of life is in the water of life. And now we are going on to see we are parts of the tree of life because we are parts of the vine, which is really the tree of life with the branches. The Bible reveals that the relationship that God desires to have with man is that he and man become one. 
The Lord doesn't want to say, look, okay, I'm here. I'm going to give you my life so that you can be the same as I am. Now, we can be buds. We can be friends. This will not satisfy him. His desire is to make himself one with us and us one with him. This is signified by the marriage. It's signified by grafting. So even regarding the tree of life, we not only eat, we are part of the tree. And when our experience deepens, we will eat by abiding in the tree as parts of the tree. God desires that the divine life and the human life be joined to become one life. This oneness is an organic union, a union of life, a grafted life. Christ as the tree of life is the embodiment of God as life to us, and we are united with him organically. We not only eat Christ as the tree of life, we are united with him, we are one with him, and we are a part of him. My feeling is, this is just an old message, everything you've heard before. My feeling is, this is a new message. Yeah. It's fresh, it's bright, Amen. it's shining with fresh light, because the true light is shining Amen. on the things that we have heard for so long, Amen. making them real in us, even as they are real in God. Amen. Praise the Lord for the tree of life. Amen. Now, as enjoyers of the tree and as parts of the tree, don't you feel the Lord wants to flow out yes. from you Amen. so we can have a mutual enjoyment of this tree? Amen. So it is follow the sense of life within. I enjoyed your speaking so much. It was so genuine, unpretentious, real. So let's just continue. Take 15, 20 minutes to share with one another what is touching you, enlightening you, and impressing you concerning the tree of life. Okay, your turn.